Hello, I'm Rachel Tromlin, a Professor of Physical Therapy at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center. What we're going to do today for our podcast is do a case discussion, case series discussion on management of patients with unilateral vestibular hypofunction. I'm really happy and privileged to have two great clinicians with me today, and I'll have them introduce themselves. First, I'll introduce Sarah Oxborough. Sarah, can you please uh, tell the audience about yourself? My name is Sarah Oxborough. I'm a physical therapist at the National Disease and Balance Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and have been treating patients with vestibular disorders for about nine years now. Okay, great. And we also have Andrea Miro. Andrea, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Andrea Miro, physical therapist. I also work at the National Disease and Balance Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm going on my third year of treating vestibular patients. Okay, great. And so first to present a case, well, we'll have Sarah. So Sarah, take it away. All right. So my case is a patient, a 73-year-old female presented to our clinic with a five-week history of ongoing dizziness and imbalance that had started suddenly with strong vertigo, nausea, and vomiting for which she had to be hospitalized for. At the time she presented to our clinic, she was having some trouble with reaching to get things out of cabinets doing her house cleaning, going for her walks, and she kind of described uh, a bouncing sensation when she would walk. Overall, she was extremely fatigued uh, and having trouble just keeping up with, with daily activity. Her past medical, uh, past medical history was significant for allergies and migraines. So during our exam, uh, we found spontaneous left feeding nystagmus using our infrared goggles and she did have a positive head thrust test on the right. The further testing we did for her balance showed a functional gait assessment of 22 out of 30. We did the sensory organization test and she scored a 46% with falls on condition five and six. Her dynamic visual acuity was a four line difference. She completed the DHI, the dizziness handicap inventory and scored an 80. And just in general, she rated her symptoms. The scale we use is a 0 to 10, with 10 being the worst. So she rated her symptoms uh, anywhere between a 7 to 10 out of 10. And after our testing, she did complete our diagnostic testing with our audiologist. And on calorics, was found to have a 59% hypofunction on the right. So we started treatment at the next session. and. Just, I was only able to start with uh, gaze times one exercise, and I started about eight feet away um, on, the, on the floor, and we did 30 seconds to start with before she was getting too dizzy. She had a lot of trouble keeping the target in focus initially, a lot of oscillopsia and visual blurring, especially when she went to the right. So we spent a lot of time in that first session just trying to get that technique correct. And then the second exercise I gave her was just standing on a perturbed surface with eyes closed using pillows. Um, because of the falls that she had on condition five on the SOT. She actually then had to travel for four weeks, so I sent her with those exercises, just those two, and gave her progressions to work on by herself. When she came back four weeks later, she actually was feeling much better, so we were able to progress pretty quickly after that. We added in some head movement on that perturbed surface, we added in a busy visual background using checkers to the gaze times one exercise. And then I had her do a walking with head turn exercise as well. She was moving much faster. The uh, target was no longer blurring as much with the game, 
gaze times one as well. Uh, she continued to improve. One complaint she had towards the end was dizziness watching people move around her. So I did add in a VOR cancellation exercise, which I find to be helpful with people who have that complaint. And uh, by the fifth and sixth session, she was feeling almost back to normal. She had some residual symptoms, kind of a low-level lightheadedness, which she attributed to her allergies, and she was going to seek out an ENT consultation on that. So at her last visit, she no longer was functionally limited by her dizziness. She was back to walking, back to doing housework. She reported her overall symptoms now at a 2 out of 10 versus a 7 out of 10 initially. Her FGA, functional gait assessment, improved to a 28 out of 30, which was good for her age. Uh, the SOT improved to a 79% versus a 46%. The DVA went to a three-line difference, so still slightly abnormal but improved. And her DHI went down to an 18. Uh, she completed four out of her four short-term goals and two out of her four long-term goals. Um, but overall, she progressed very quickly in just five or six, six sessions. Great. I think that's just, yeah. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Um, all right, Andrew, if you'd like to present your case. Absolutely. I had a 55-year-old female. <clears throat> um, she presented to us two days after a sudden onset of dizziness, vertigo, imbalance, unsteadiness, and nausea and vomiting. Uh, she actually needed assistance to ambulate into the clinic. Her symptoms were so strong that first day. She works full-time on a computer uh, and reports that she enjoys swing dancing in her free time. Her past medical history includes depression, hypothyroidism, bipolar disorder, and also hysterectomy. So at initial evaluation, she rated her symptoms anywhere from an 8 to 10, where 10 is the worst. Um, and her functional limitations were driving, really anything with head movement, any physical activity, um, being in busy environments. She was very unsteady with her gait, wasn't able to wash her hair independently. She couldn't lie flat on her back or her left side. She wasn't at work and she couldn't be dancing. So her goals overall were to get back to work and return to her free time activities of dancing. So on initial evaluation, um, BPBV testing was negative, and we were suspicious of that because she wasn't able to lay flat or on her left side. And in ocular motor screening, with the infrared goggles, she had spontaneous right beating nystagmus. And then when head thrust was tested, it was positive to the left. She had an abnormal dynamic visual acuity of four lines. And on her functional gait assessment, she scored a 15 out of 30. So she was at a fall risk, and age norms were 28 out of 30. She had a moderate and severe sway with uh, vertical and horizontal head nods, respectively, and just was very slow and very careful overall. We were closely guarding her during that evaluation. On her sensory organization test, she scored a 50%. Age norms on that test for her were 70%. Uh, the test showed no vestibular input for balance because she had balls on condition 5 and 6. So overall, her evaluation and diagnosis was um, a left unilateral vestibular hypofunction. So to start treatment, we started off at twice a week. Um, she actually came back two weeks later because it was over the holidays. And at her very first visit after the evaluation, we started her on gaze times 1 because of her abnormal DVA. She started eight feet away on a normal surface, and we too had trouble with the osteopsia and bouncing um, letter, especially when she was going to the left. We started her standing eyes closed on a really thin pillow because of the difficulty on condition five of the SOT. 
and then started some very slow static head nods on a normal surface with her feet together. Because of her interest in getting back to dancing, we started that first session with doing some slow turns. She was able to handle uh, figure eight 180 turns, so we did very slow 180 degree turns to get her back to what she wanted to be doing. So over the next few sessions, we progressed very slowly, um, eventually decreasing the distance of gaze times one and adding a thin perturbed surface to that exercise. We also were able to add a thin perturbed surface to her head nods, and we're able to get her feet closer together. We also worked on increasing the speed of her turns, and by the fifth session, she was able to do some slow 360-degree turns with just mild symptoms. We also then added um, gait with head in each direction, horizontal, vertical, and diagonal every two to three steps. However, on the sixth visit, she came back and said she's having a lot more difficulty with getting vertigo in bed, especially rolling to that left side and the back again, just like she had talked about at the initial evaluation. So we tested her for BPPV and found a positive left posterior canal. She was treated for four total sessions. It just um, wouldn't clear up, so we did modified Epley two or three each session. And after the third, gave her a self-Epley to be doing at home just for some additional treatment. And finally, by that next visit, she was cleared. At that visit, it was the tenth visit, five weeks after her initial evaluation. We found negative BPPV and then just retested the other things to see how she had progressed. Her functional gait assessment was now a 27 out of 30 as compared to 15 to start. Her DVA was still at four lines, and her sensory organization test was now 72% and all within normal limits. She came back for three additional sessions once her BPPV was cleared, and we were able to move on to some higher level activities. We were able to get her feet all the way together on a perturbed surface, um, both with static standing and with head nods. We were able to add a tandem walk. And then we started adding some busy backgrounds to gaze times one and gait activities because when she's dancing, there were lights and different crowded environments that she needed to be in to return to her hobby. Um, so in the background of her 360-degree turns, we started adding some busy environments. At the, her last visit, she now rated unsteadiness at a 4 out of 10 and dizziness at 0 out of 10. She had returned to dancing. She did have moments of imbalance with quick movements, but was pleased that she was able to participate. Still had some mild imbalance at work with fast movements. No symptoms or difficulties with ADLs or bed mobility. She was able to return to driving independently. Uh, unfortunately, she did not follow up with PT after this visit, so we don't have um, discharge numbers as far as the FGA or DVA. But she was planned to come back for every other week, so she was doing much better and really had achieved a lot of her own goals as far as her functional limitations. All right, and Rachel, back to you. Uh, sounds great. Thank you, Andrea. Um, so the patient I have is a 68-year-old female who came to me nine months after um, a episode of facial weakness, and it was severe facial weakness, and she was originally diagnosed with Bell's palsy. Um, she came to me from a neurootologist who, instead of diagnosing her with Bell's palsy, has changed the diagnosis to Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. What Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is, is a herpes zoster infection of the facial nerve. So what happens is, is herpes zoster is the same virus that's implicated in chicken pox. It lays dormant for years, and then it attacks um, and comes out the facial nerve. 
And if you remember your neuroanatomy, the facial nerve and the vestibular cochlear nerve run very close together. So it is thought that the virus sort of hops from the facial nerve to the vestibular cochlear nerve, causing a unilateral deficit. And her impairments were on her left side. Um, so she complained of, in addition to having the severe facial weakness, she complained of significant imbalance um, present when she was standing or walking, associated with quick body turns, quick movements, and getting up from a chair. Her past medical history um, was significant for surgical history of thumb arthroplasty and lumbar spine fusion and having some osteoarthritis, but not having any, any other vestibular disorder. And she had had two falls in the past year, all occurring when walking on uneven surfaces. So walking was probably her main limitation. She was retired, but working part-time as a bookkeeper um, for a family business and also working in her condo association. So upon initial evaluation, her five repetition sit-to-stand test was 9.45 seconds. I usually like to do that as just a general quick screen for lower extremity strength and certainly also balance and fall prediction. Her ABC was 51%, so this was someone who did not feel very confident in her balance at all. Her modified SITSIB, she scored 30 seconds in the first two conditions, condition three only 20 seconds, and condition four five seconds, so for a total of 85 out of 120. Her DHI, Dizziness Handicap Inventory, was a score of 38 out of 100, which puts her into a moderate handicap, and her FGA was a score of 19 out of 30. This confirms that she was a fall risk, being less than the cutoff score of 22 for community-dwelling older adults. Moreover, her age-related norm would have been 27, so she was eight points below where she should have been. Her gait speed was 3.17 feet per second, um, which was slower than I would like to see for someone that age. Age-related um, norm would be about 3.5, 3.8 feet per second. Um, Ocular motor testing was all normal except for some saccadic pursuit, which I just attributed um, saccadic pursuit with smooth pursuits, which I attributed to age-related changes in the ocular motor system, um, except she did have a positive left head thrust, so she, again confirming to me that she had a left unilateral vestibular hypofunction. Um, so we started therapy, and I set her on a schedule of coming once a week. Again, she was came in December, and uh, like Andrea's patient was interrupted due to the holiday, so we missed a couple of weeks. But by the time I got to our first reevaluation in the beginning of January, she had made significant progress. Her gait speed was up to 3.52 feet per second from 3.17 feet per second. Her FGA had increased to 25 out of 30, and her ABC had increased up to 60%. So not exactly where I want it to be, but definitely showing positive movement in the right direction. And so I wanted to continue seeing her once a week. Um, however, she called me on uh, Valentine's Day, which was about a month after the reevaluation. I'd seen her for a couple of sessions, and she reported that she had tripped over some objects at home and broke a few toes. Now, it's also important to know with this patient that she is someone who had admitted that she was very, very clumsy, so this certainly could be part of her balance dysfunction, but also certainly part of her just having a history of, of being clumsy, and that her physician said that she should be off her feet for about six weeks, and we were at the point where we were doing a lot of walking exercises, so 
so I thought it would be best just to hold therapy. Um, and then so in that time, as we were holding therapy, she was also traveling up to Baton Rouge to see Sarah McDowell, who helps out with our vestibular uh, SIG board as well. And she was seeing Sarah for facial rehabilitation. And um, on one of her trips up, she actually got into a car accident. So uh, having the car accident, healing from that, sh I, I discharged her at that time um, and told her that once she kind of settled some of these things down for her to come back to therapy. So we had approximately a six-month um, break, and she came back to see me in mid-August. At that time, um, her facial droop had improved. It was still present, but you could tell she was starting to get some spasm, and the facial rehabilitation was doing well. Um, I completed the FGA, and she scored a 16 out of 30. Modified SITSIB, she improved on conditions one, two, and three to 30 seconds, and condition four, she was still at five seconds. Um, her ABC at that time was 59.4%, her DHI at 36, and gait speed at 3.46 feet per second. Again, a little bit slower than where I'd like to see. We picked off a little bit where we left off and started back on um, general rehabilitation program. I should mention that some of the interventions we were doing are very similar to what Karen, I'm sorry, what um, Andrea and Sarah had described where we were doing a lot of VOR training starting in sitting, progressing to standing, Romberg, and walking exercises. We were doing walking with head turns, both with and without visual focus, walking with body turns, walking with eyes closed, um, and tandem walking as well. Um, I put her back on a once a week schedule, and she progressed very, very well. Um, back she her reevaluation about a month later her five repetitions sit to stand test was down to 6.65 seconds which is great for someone her age her her abc was 76% fga um, increasing to 22 dhi decreasing to 32 and gait speed to 3.5 uh, feet per second um, so at that time, she had developed a migraine, developed migraine attack. She had had history ongoing of migraine, so it was unrelated to the dizziness, but she was unable to participate in therapy. Her mother also became very sick at that time, so she had to take a couple of months off to care for her mother. So we had another about two-month break from therapy. Um, once she returned back to therapy, her status remained um, about the same as when I had last seen her. And we started again on a once-a-week schedule. And then finally, um, just about ready to discharge, I did another reevaluation. ABC had improved 89%. Modified SITSIB gotten up to 30 seconds on condition 4. FGA up to 27. DHI down to 18. Gait speed was at 4 feet per second. And this was one of the patients where I said, okay, we have like one or two exercise programs um, we'll bring it back in for one session, give you a couple of weeks. In that couple of weeks time, she had gone on a ski trip and was walking around and again, 
tripped, stubbed her toes, and ended up breaking her toes again. And this, I think, was more out of clumsy and not as much um, balance. So we took another couple months off and then finally came back for one last session um, to which her FGA remained the same at 27, DHI decreased down to 2, gait speed was at 4.16 um, feet per second. So I was very happy with where she was at at that time. She had achieved all the goals that I had um, set for her, was getting the FGA up to 27, um, getting the gait speed above 3.75 feet per second, modified SITSIB, 30 seconds on all condition. Um, upon discharge, her ABC was 98%. I'd set a goal for 85% or more. So she did really well. I think looking back at this case, when I think about how long I saw this patient, I saw her about over a year and a half time length, but I only saw her total for 11 sessions. So I think one of the big take-home messages from this case um, is that patients can sort of take breaks from therapy if they need to, to uh, take care of things in their everyday life that might come up, but that they're still able to make progress once you reinitiate therapy. The way I sort of tell this to patients is like you're pressing the pause button. You're probably not going to get much better if you take a break from therapy, but you're not going to have a significant backslide as long as you remain active and you're doing some of the exercises that I've taught them. I find I do this a lot with patients as well who are having issues with compliance with their exercise program. Um, as you all know home exercise program compliance and home exercise treatment is a cornerstone and I don't really feel that I can um, treat anyone with a hypofunction or another disorder which requires a lot of homework unless they're going to be compliant and so when my patients don't have compliance instead of just discharging them and saying you know bad patient you're not doing what I'm asking I try and work with them to see what are the reasons not for not having compliance and then try and figure out you know is this really the best time in your life to commit to this therapy or should we maybe sort of just press the pause and wait for a time when you can truly commit and you can truly get the most out of it so I think it's just a really um, important takeaway and something to think about um, so in kind of comparing and contrasting some of these cases, um, one of the similarities I see ladies is with the interventions, that we all did very similar types of interventions and having those progressions. I don't know if you guys um, want to comment on that a little bit more, maybe uh, Sarah first. Yes, I agree. I think given that some of our scores were a little bit similar, it, it uh, on our objective testing, it kind of laid out the treatment pathway for my patient, and it sounds like similar with your patients. Um, each patient, it sounds like we made a little bit of adjustments based on what they wanted to do in daily life, but in general, I feel like with hypofunction, you're almost always going to start with some kind of gaze stability exercise, uh, usually an exercise where you're on an upper turb surface and, and the walking with the, the vertical and horizontal nods. Those are kind of my go-to exercises for my hypofunction. Yes, mine, mine as well. Andrea, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. No, I agree. There's kind of the basic few you start with and progress through the same way of adding the perturbed surface, um, moving from static to dynamic activities, um, moving from sitting to standing if they need to start in sitting initially. Um, and then in my patient, uh, the BPPV, again, wasn't present on initial evaluation, but I think one of my take-homes was if you're hearing something that sounds like it, even if it's middle of treatment, test it out. So certainly um, quite often in our Hypofunction patients, we do find DPPV. So at our sixth visit, it was present. So that did slow down our 
um, therapy a little bit, kind of like your life events, just in a different way. But she was able to pick back up afterwards and continue with her exercises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Andrea, I think you bring up a really great point of, you know, not always thinking everything has to be due to one disorder. Patients can have two different disorders going on at the same time, and this can certainly crop up later in the treatment. So I think it's also a really important point to state, like, that you should treat every visit almost like a mini reevaluation, and that you're sort of taking a step back and independently looking at some of these factors. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the other things, when you look at the fact that we all did very similar interventions with the VOR, the walking with head turns, um, the balance on buried surfaces, I think from a physician perspective, it might be really tempting to say that, hey, let's just give patients these paper programs and have them do it because a lot of the exercises are similar. Um, but I do know that research has demonstrated that specific interventions with therapists and adjusting those interventions and progressing is much better for patients than um, just giving them a sheet. And um, maybe, uh, Sarah, if you could highlight what do you think some of the benefits are in having that kind of one-to-one -one interaction with the patient and customized progression? Well, I think, first of all, starting the, the exercises correctly with somebody with a hypofunction who isn't able to keep focused on that target, it took us quite a while to actually get that get her to do that correctly. So, And I rechecked that every time she came in and did notice improvement. Also, sometimes functional deficits change as you work with your patients. What initially they couldn't do gets better, but then they notice other things as they're becoming more active that still aren't as good as, as they want. In my case, initially she really wasn't doing much of anything. Halfway through she went to a wedding and noticed that all the people moving around her really brought out her symptoms, so that's when I did add in some busy background, some visual noise, and had I just sent her off with papers for the rest you know, of her treatment, that wouldn't have come up and she wouldn't have got those interventions, which did help. So I think it's very important to have patients come at least once a week. Typically here at our clinic, we start off twice a week, but then go down to once a week as they progress and start to feel better. Okay, great. Andrew, if you could share your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think it's very important to have the exercises adjusted, both in progression, but also in kind of watching their reactions. I've had people that have setbacks, you know, they get sick or they go through a stressful time and they're still able to come to therapy, but they just can't tolerate the exercises at the level that they were maybe doing last week. So in that sense, I think it's very important to be able to adjust and pull back to give them an achievable level and then keep progressing at their following visits. It's, if it's too much for the patients, they're also not going to continue doing it if they're feeling worse. So I think we play in that role as well. Yeah, great points, ladies. Another one of the benefits, I think, to having the patients and following up with them on a regular basis is some of the psychosocial support. As you know, a lot of these, uh, the dizziness symptoms and the disability that it causes can be very distressing for patients. And so they um, are very, very tentative to do anything that brings on the dizziness. So just for that education aspect and the one-on-one -on -one and to kind of talk about some of those symptom fluctuations and how they should feel during the exercise, I think it's really important to kind of keep regular tabs to keep that compliance and really monitor their psychosocial status as well. I'm really glad you brought that up because um, my patient has history of depression and bipolar disorder and did report a lot of anxiety and just being skeptical about these things working for exactly that reason. She felt worse during them. She couldn't understand why these things would help. Uh, so she did take a lot of encouragement and education at every session to assure her that these things were going to be helping until she started to see some progress. 
Um, and I do find that with a lot of my patients. They do need just a lot of encouragement and um, showing them how they've made progress, giving specific examples compared to their initial evaluation. And mm -hmm. it certainly is present in a lot of vestibular patients. Yeah, and Andrew, I think you bring up a really good point of showing the patients that they make progress. When I do the reevaluation, I'm always showing the patients all the outcome measures, and I show them this is where you were, this is where you are now, this is what this means. Our goal is to get to you know this number for this reason. So I think that's very motivating for patients. Andrea, did you feel that her history of bipolar impacted her progress at all? I think it did, especially in the beginning. It slowed us down. Um, and then when the BPTV was present, she just had a really hard time sorting through her symptoms, sorting through what was going on. And she kind of reported that, too, that she was having some difficulties managing the bipolar medication changes. Um, so it, it, we just had to be very careful with making sure that she felt secure and confident in what she was doing. OK, great. Um, do you ladies notice any other similarities or differences with the cases that you'd like to highlight? I think, with, you know, in my case, it was pretty straightforward. I didn't really have any barriers to her treatment, and I think that's why it made it go so quickly. And her personality type was different, I think, than what Andrea's described, where she was confident in what we were doing it right from the get-go. She took some of the things on her own and even progressed herself initially. So that made it a little bit easier, and, and oftentimes that isn't the case. So although this is a straightforward case, I almost feel like this is the exception to what we see in our clinic more often than not. Um, and and just to a little take home that, it, the dizziness isn't completely clear at the end, but there are, are sometimes other factors that you can't control, such as allergies or the migraines that I think it happened in your case as well, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, and I think one of the important things to note that you guys talk about returning to functional activities, and I had forgotten to mention with my patient, um, that one of the big functional activities she wanted to return to was to be able to play with her grandkids, because she had smaller grandkids. And her thing, too, was dancing, and she really wanted to dance with her grandkids. So actually, as one of the exercise programs I gave her, I said, I just want you to dance and do things like turning your head side to side, turning your body, do things that would challenge your vestibular system. And she loved that as an assignment, that she could just like put on whatever music she wanted to and um, go have a good time with the grandkids. And I was really happy that she was able to return to that activity. That's another similarity in my case. When we were doing walking with 360-degree turns, she kind of said, well, this is similar to some of my dance moves. So we allowed her to say, go ahead, do some of those moves as mm -hmm. we're doing these exercises. You know, they can be salient to you and things that you enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And that also made her more motivated to work on it at home because she could directly see how that was going to impact what she wanted to return to. Yep. I do that a lot with patients who are trying to return to a specific functional activity. And I'll say, you know, show me what you do. I've had patients, um, like a lot of patients who do yoga, and they'll say, oh, I get dizzy when I do yoga. Well, show me the yoga move. Show me what it's like. And then breaking down the task and turning that to an exercise. And like you said, it just makes it much more functional and meaningful to the patient. Yeah, I think it definitely motivates the patient, too, as they start to do some of their functional activities in therapy and recognize that, oh, I'm a little dizzy, but it's not too bad. I think that lifts spirits and shows that they are making good progress. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things to bring up, so uh, Sarah, if I remember right, you said your patient had four visits total? Six visits total. She, Six visits. she was out of, the, uh, out of town for four weeks prior to our second visit. Okay, that's where I got the four from. And yeah. then Andrea had 10 visits total, yes? 
13. Oh, 13. And then I had 11 visits total. So I think another important point to bring up, and I think something especially as we look at sort of health policy-wise and the future direction where physical therapy is going, I think we are very, very poised to sort of tackle the future. That if you see, especially Sarah, six visits would be very typical for an uncomplicated case of unilateral vestibular hypofunction, that when you look at it from a healthcare payment perspective, I mean, to take someone who wasn't doing all these activities and returning them to all those activities and six physical therapy visits, I think is amazing and, and is a really good use of healthcare funds and healthcare money. And even if you look at Andrea and I, who had um, more complex cases, Andrea's as developing BPBV along the way and having to treat that as well, that she was still able to treat this patient in 13 visits and with the patient having depression on top of that. I mean, still a, a fantastic use of, of healthcare money and healthcare dollars and I don't know if either one of you guys have thought about that or want to sort of comment how well we're poised in that area. I completely agree and I think that's something our clinic has looked at especially as healthcare changes and reimbursements change uh, that we have the right objective measures and we have the right diagnostic tools to get that patient the, the best diagnosis from the get-go and, and individualizing the treatment right from the start. It goes back to your point about not just handing off a piece of paper, but making sure that treatment's individualized each session. And I think that's why we can progress so quickly. And I do agree with all your comments. I think we're poised quite well, you know, particularly in vestibular therapy, to show that our treatment really works well, works efficiently, and gets patients uh, back from fall risk and back from and back to doing everything that they want to do fairly quickly. And I agree with all of that, and I hear it from the patient side too. Of um, I'm feeling so much better after only you know one to two months, and my cost. I've heard from several patients that their cost of PT was less than the MRI they had at the beginning. Didn't do anything for them, and here they are feeling better after all these PT sessions. So even financially, from the patient perspective, it's cost effective. Very good. Yeah, and I think especially if you um, think about where payment is going, if they're just paying for a lump sum for a diagnosis and then having to figure out, we as clinicians figuring out how to fit the, the visits in and or payment based on outcomes, I say bring it on. Judge me on my outcomes because <laughs> I, I, will, I will take that to the house every single day. Um, and that I think one of the things that really unites vestibular practitioners is a really strong ability to differentially diagnose, like you mentioned from the beginning, and apply that correct treatment um, and to really get good results very efficiently. Definitely, yes. Okay, great. Um, ladies, any other thoughts in closing or any other uh, final thoughts or comments? I think that's good. I agree with the compliance. Get them to do the exercises and they'll get better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Well, I thank you guys for your time today, and stay tuned for the rest of this fall and perhaps the winter. We'll be doing other case series on other vestibular diagnoses. If you have an interest in participating, please reach out to me by email, r-t-r-o-m-m at l-s-u-h-s-c, that stands for Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, dot edu. Thank you very much, ladies. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.